Jack Devine, today is really quite an extraordinary day to be speaking to you as we've just been watching Vladimir Putin out of Moscow on various news services wishing something approaching best wishes to Joe Biden. What is going on? Well, um, words are cheap, as they say in my neighborhood. Um, it's going to be appropriate thing to say. Uh, temperatures were going up uh, recently, and I think the Russians were asking for an apology over something that President Biden said. But there's longer term interest when you when we look at Putin and his strategy that whether or not there's a charm offensive on either side will will be determined more by the realities of the strategy. And we're talking to you specifically now, The Hook Is, your new book, Spymaster's Prison, written in the context of the fact that you served in the CIA for 32 years. You rose to become the acting director of operations and the associate director of operations in charge of overseeing intelligence activities of thousands of agents worldwide. So you know of what you speak. A leopard does not change its spots in intelligence or any other service, uh, even commercial. Putin, the KGB man. How is Putin, the KGB man, the man we still see today? Well, Claude, I like the way you queued up the uh, Putin, the, uh, the, the, the KGB man. I actually have a chapter in a book called The Spy Master Present, This Putin. And there's a small quote under it, uh, and it says, there is no such thing as a former KGB officer. And that's that's Putin being quoted. I would say the same thing. There's no such thing as a former CIA uh, person. It doesn't mean that we're on the payroll. It just means that we have a way of looking at the world, right? So I think uh, Putin has, you know, the vision of, uh, of a spy master, but it's set more in the... the old Cold War than in the modern world we, we live. But I know, I think I understand his mindset and his strategy is, uh, I think he's handling it extremely well. I think he's very tactically competent. I just have to think that the strategy is not only wrong for dealing with us, but also in, in terms of looking at Russia over the longer arc of history. So, but we could talk about that as well, what we think might be on his mind. Well, that, this, of course, brings up, you just said, the old Cold War. Arguably, your book shows it's the same Cold War. There is no old or new. So people like Chuck Grassley, who were raised hiding under the desk, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, seem to have blocked all that out and now have embraced Putin and, and Moscow generally and the Soviet axis, that what remains of it, because arguably it's still the same influence, um, to just get their short-term domestic political gains. That's the part of it I'd like you to help me understand. How do the Reds under the beds aficionados, how are they so willing to dump all their fear and what they called their principles for short-term political gain? Well, I think there's two sides of, of this coin, and I think to understand that point, we need to understand what's motivating uh, Putin so that I can draw out why I think it's wrong-footed on their part to, to be so optimistic about the future in terms of the relationship. But Putin's, uh, you know, was a young man, as, as you recall, in Dresden, uh, on this, uh, in, in the time when Dresden was the center of uh, uh, Marcus Wolf, the Car uh, Carla in James Bond's books, right? 
it was an area of 100,000 spies. So he, he wasn't in Paris and Washington and Tokyo whining and dining. He was in really a cold, cold war mentality when the Soviet Union collapsed. And it was such an impactful blow that I think he decided from that point forward, he was going to, any opportunity he had to rebuild the old world, he was going to go back to it. So over the years, he became the head of the FSB, the FBI. But he also became very, very effective in the political arena. The, the, the senior bureaucrats thought they could manage him, and the truth of the matter, he managed them. But he became the prime minister but and then and president. And when he became the head of, the, of Russia, he was using the same outlook that America somehow was inherently opposed to Russia and that Russia needed to weaken its neighbors and bring them under their influence, like the Soviet Union. They needed to get the Ukraine back and to get the Crimea and get warm water ports. And all this will sound very familiar to you and your audience. It's the anniversary today. Sorry to interrupt. It is the anniversary of the annexation of Crimea today, is it not? Well, and, and that is an, an event that I think is underestimated widely, and including the audience that you were talking about earlier, that seems to want to have a good relationship with us. I mean, this was a, uh, this is the new Berlin, in my point of view. The Ukraine is where Russia's interests and ours actually rub up against each other. I think our response was, uh, was uh, far less strong than I would have liked when they went in there. Uh, so... Cutting to the cutting to the chase, he has in his mind the continuation of the Cold War. Now he may put a smile on it, and we may try uh, try to ignore it as this group that you were referring to might. Uh, I'm personally for a reset. Russia and the United States, there's no reason communism isn't around. We should have a. Uh, they should be part of your should be part of the uh, of the Western world, but. It takes, and I lived in Argentina for a while, it takes two to tango. And our wishes to reset with them fail to recognize that he doesn't want that reset. And what does it take to get the reset? I think it's strong foreign policy and a realistic foreign policy that doesn't want to you know, downplay uh, the tensions with Russia. And there's a, a fairly significant number of people that are missing the point about Russia. And, Claudia, I'd like to talk about that at some point, why I think we should be worried so much about Russians and when everyone in the world said, oh, China's the number one threat, why would we even waste any time on it, such as the folks you're talking about? And I have strong reasons to, to, that makes drove me to write this book about that issue. Well, well, let's continue on that, because the subtitle of your book is The Fight Against Russian Aggression. What are these strong reasons, Jack Devine? Well, I think, again, if we just look at what is in the general uh, public's mentality everywhere you turn, it's China, and it is. It is a geopolitical, economic, long, long-term, maybe even short-term problem. But when you look at who is actually meddling in the internal affairs of the United States, it's the old Russia intelligence uh, world. And I make, I make this point because during the Cold War, we actually had some rules. They were unwritten. But there was an understanding that we would not meddle inside of Russia in its internal affairs, and they would not meddle in ours. There's a few exceptions to it, but largely after Stalin, and I can tell you having sit in the positions that you were talking about, we were not meddling inside of Russia. They used to call them the Moscow rules. 
There's another set that people get confused about how you behave in Moscow in order to operate. You know, don't wear a uh, uh, University of Kentucky T-shirt, if you will. But my my uh, my point is that and when you when you look at what they're doing uh, today, Russia is the uh, is the one that not only interfered in our our election in 2016 by hacking in and using cyber. Everybody around the world is very cyber sensitive. The difference was they went and acted inside the United States. And it's not so much because whether they want Trump or don't want Trump or Biden or Hillary, they really want the United States to be weak politically. In other words, not looking for a revolution as the old communists, but they, they want to weaken America because some, somehow in his Cold War mentality, if the U.S. is weak politically, he is somehow strengthened. I think it's a bad philosophy, but if you look at it, and if you look at what his, his operations produced, I mean, it indeed went into a lot of the Facebooks and Twitter, but, and, and very exploitive of those things. But we ended up for the next four years fighting amongst our, ourselves, rooted in that Russian initiative. Now, I actually think they overachieved and did not realize the full import and what would unfold. But it had, nonetheless, they were interfering in the United States. If you look at the Chinese, their intelligence operations are collection-oriented, but I think it's hard to find, and there's a, a report that was out this past week pointing out that the Russians and the Iranians were even trying to influence the 20 election, but the Chinese were not. So there's a different way of looking at both of them. That, that we, have, we have to get serious about this issue, particularly in the cyber age, of Russia's interference in our internal affairs. That cannot go on unchallenged. And, and that's what I think much of the American public is missing the point about the election itself and not understanding that it has a bigger, uh, there's a bigger objective here. And it seems to be fairly successful, more than I had anticipated. Well, very successful, I would argue. It's destabilized America so much so that people talk about a coming civil war, uh, the solar hacks incident. Um, what happened to Robert Mueller? Robert Mueller is a man who was at the forefront of exposing this and obviously all the information that I'm quite sure you were hoping would come out and show the real situation between Donald Trump, the 45th president, and Vladimir Putin would come out and it did not. To many of us, that was completely and utterly inexplicable. Given intelligence forces, which are extremely competent in the United States, how was that also successfully killed so that the real state was not exposed? Well, let me let me address what I think the Mueller uh, Commission actually did. Uh, I mean, if you, one goes through it and really look at it, you will see that uh, the Russians were very active trying to get sources around uh, the Trump team. I mean, they were out there trying to arrange meetings, talking. Now, this is not something new. It's what... Uh, it's what I would be asked to do if I were looking at the external world and making sure we would find assets around key political figures in countries that had interest stuff, national interest contrary to our own. And what it spoke to the fact that for many years there's been penetrations of our government. Uh, it's not a surprise. It's, it, it always becomes a big splash. I knew the spy Ames, the CIA spy, and I knew uh, I chased after 
Robert Hansen, the spy in the FBI. So they were out there running around, and it's all reported there. It looked a little bit like the Keystone Cops, and that's because this was a whole new team that they had no access to. They had access to the traditional Republicans and traditional Democrats, and I'm sure they... So it was frantic and not very uh, and not very effective because it became public. Also, all of their activities in terms of uh, meddling in the in the uh, using, as I said, uh, social media to stir up trouble it was more about stirring up trouble and dissent than it was so much about having a, a defining impact on the election. I think where it got spun off. In other words, if you look at the report, there's plenty there that substantiates Russian intervention in the United States election. From my point of view, that's that is not really it's really hard to dispute that. Was the collusion issue. And that was was President Trump colluding with, with the Russians. And then you got into the gray space and the political space. And I'll leave that to others to sort out that issue. But at the end he said he didn't have it, but maybe Congress should investigate it. But what he did have. It's what is basically consistent with my theme, which is the the Russians clearly, based on that commission's report, uh, was indeed uh, involved in our elections. I was actually surprised when I first learned about the Russians going into the DNC and then using the information, because I thought it was such a such a seismic change in how we behaved during the Cold War. Is so much more aggressive. And yet you rarely hear anybody talking about the seriousness of that. It's more about the election and, 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 and focus solely on Trump rather than what are the Russians really up to. So I, I, I know I think the book, the book walks through their behavior over history and this is and how they operate and how they try to influence events uh, throughout their entire and the thing that's different today, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that as well, is what's different in intelligence business today is the cyberware. This new aggression, you said they're more aggressive. Well, of course, they pretty much hit NATO full on to render it very much weaker than it was. And America's allies and the Russia cyber attack on U.S. federal agencies and commercial enterprises with the solar winds hacked. That was a very apotheosis of aggression towards domestic and intelligence interests in the US. And yet many Americans, even now, are hugely unaware of what that solar winds hack did and what its potential is. Right. And how aggressive. I mean, again, uh, you're talking about going against the State Department, Treasury, DHS. I mean, this is a country that, you know, you were just saying at the beginning of the program, there were saying nice things to each other. Well, if you're saying that, but you're actually taking very aggressive steps, and it was a major intrusion that is not fully evaluated, but I will give you my my two cents on this issue, and I think it's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, this is this isn't their this isn't their full play here. I mean, if we think that that's all they're doing, I, I think we will, we need to read history and we need. To, my book, but I mean, I think they're very deeply into our system. Now, one of the problems I think today is when you know you talk in years gone by, hostilities and war, you can see the troops and you can count the tanks and the missiles and the silos, and you can even have treaties over these things. Cyber is not visible, 
largely not visible until something happens. And it's very hard to have a treaty. I know a few years ago that the U.S. government during the, the Obama era you know, had a treaty with China on cyber. And I, mean, I, I really just got good play in the newspaper, but it was very unrealistic. There, you can't have a treaty because no, no country can admit that they're using all the resources available for cyber collection. And yet that's a truism around the world, whether you're a small country, big country, and even small countries now can buy capabilities that were unthought of, unheard of years ago. So I think that how do we get a handle? It's, it's a, it's a, we're, we're in a cyber world where there's mutual potential, mutual destruction, and there's hardly any way to talk, to talk about it. But what I, I really think we have to focus on is that you can see well, you can't see everything the Russians are doing. You can see enough to realize that they're not behaving. They're, they're much more aggressive than the Cold War. And I, I don't think people realize that. And we have to find a way to get an agreement. And that probably has to take place behind closed doors. And we Americans don't like things that aren't visible. But you can't have a treaty and agreement. They have to go back to some version of the Moscow rules when we, when we agree that we won't uh, there's certain things we won't do in each country, and we don't have to. We don't have to say we're not going to collect because that's not realistic. But we can agree not to play in internal affairs. That has to be ironed out, and that is not where we stand today, sadly. No, indeed. And and your book is chock full of this examination of the extent of this, their new aggression, and, and it has to be read. Spymaster's Prison by Jack Devine. Jack, yesterday, President Biden was asked, asked flat out if he thinks that Vladimir Putin is a killer. He answered in the affirmative. We saw the Skripals being poisoned in Britain. We've seen Navalny, who went back willingly, in quotes, uh, disappear off to a camp where he's meant to apparently, allegedly, stand all day, etc. I mean, you could be the most casual observer of Putin effects, as I call them, and can see the net result of his regime, which he is the head of, is killing people, Ukraine, etc. Why is this even in dispute? And what is President Biden going to do about a, a killer president of Russia? Well, again, in the book, we you know, I walk through sort of the history. It's not it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, there's been history. It's replete of and. and Russian intelligence, you know, and we've seen in many cases and more modern, it's actually in your face. It's like using ways to kill people that everybody knows only they can do it, right? I mean, your nerve, certain types of nerve uh, and viruses and so on can only be produced by a military grade in a, in a major state. So, I mean, there's way for people to disappear. You don't necessarily have to make an issue. So there's a reason it's not just willy-nilly that they, they've taken out opposition people, but, you know, starting with Trotsky in Mexico or the famous case of the Bulgarian umbrella on, on, the, uh, uh, on, on the bridge in, in uh, London uh, where they killed a guy back in the 70s with an umbrella pellet. So there's a long history, and I, I go through that. In this day and age, you would think that that's not... You know, it's uh, it's it's beyond the pale, so to, so to speak. But I think it's done for a couple of reasons. One, to give a warning to anybody else that wants to step into this space and bad things that can happen. If people just disappear, then they don't get the message. 
they have gotten uh, uh, themselves into a situation where there's a lot of sanctions on them because of this behavior. Now, yeah, he executes well, but I think the, the, the strategy is flawed. Let me go to the presidential level because the Russians are, you know, saying you need to take that back. You can't call the president a killer. Uh, and I think to your point, while there is a reality here, at the presidential level, you probably should use different, there should have been maybe a softer answer, even though the reality is, is, is what, what it's like. It's hard to go have dinner and break bread and talk about a treaty after you call somebody a killer. It's, um, so it was a tough question for, for him to answer, but there must have been, I would have thought there was a way to, to, to duck it. But the reality is, it's part of the playbook. It's always been part of the KGB's, play, KGB's playbook. They're called the SVR today. But it wanes and waxes. There are periods where it's fairly low. They had some very aggressive plans that never took place. And now it's actually in a period of upswing. And it's very aggressive. And this goes back to my point again. Uh, we're, not, we're failing to recognize that this is very aggressive behavior. The Chinese are getting stronger militarily and economically, but we haven't seen the aggression that many people are anticipating. So, and I think we are well wise to devote and shift a lot of resources to the China issue over the long haul. But right now we have a serious problem that at least a, a significant number of our own folks seem not to want to tackle or recognize. And if you don't do it, if you don't back off a bully in some of this, in, in this type of space, they only become more aggressive. We learned that throughout history. And one of the ways, I think, is through our allies. You show that uh, Russia has disrupted the internal affairs and elections of other countries apart from the US, Britain, notably Brexit, arguably the general election, the Czech Republic, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Montenegro, Norway and Spain, using cyber attacks, disinformation campaigns, funding for pro-Russian parties and direct election interference being the most significant. Foreign countries allying against Russia. There seems to be some disinterest in that. As you say, people are not taking the aggression seriously. And what about domestic opposition? Navalny seems to have support. So what about internal and external forces that could disrupt Putin and, and get him to shift from his seat of power? Well, these, are, these, are, these are new questions. We'll do external quick and internal uh, quickly as well. You know, they're not hiding their strategy. It's called a hybrid strategy. In other words, they have looked at combat in the uh, between adversaries or, or at least competitors, and they have a hybrid strategy, which calls on the importance of using political action and cyber. So part of their game plan is to use cyber as a weapon politically. And this is what I'm saying to those that will listen in the book. And that is, this is different. This is not the Cold War. This is the use of it politically amongst, between the United States and Russia. We may have used it in other countries. So internally, your questions are really uh, to the point, and that is, you know, are we seeing cracks in the Putin system? How viable is he? And uh, Navani, it's a very tricky issue. And Putin, I said, handles tactics well. It's very tricky because if he uses too hard of a hand, they'll make uh, Novotny even more popular and a more of a, a martyr figure. And if he's too soft, it'll, it'll grow. So it's a it's a true Solomon uh, uh, 
dilemma. But when you see 100,000 people in the middle of a Russian winter, it's not like uh, winter in Kentucky. I know it gets bad there too. But the, 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 point, the point is that is not insignificant that people came out. And the difference is I think Putin has a good grip on the powers of the country and is prepared to use them. When you, the Cold War finally collapsed because the, the leadership just didn't have the, the, the test of 42 to, to tough it out. Right? I'm not glad they didn't work to, um, uh, to our favor. So I, I think it's a very tricky thing. And, um, and I think this is a sign that there's some vulnerabilities in the system. But I don't think he is, uh, you know, in the short term, we're going to see a problem. But in the day of age, when we, when we were operating, you know, I'd have to pay people when I ran the program, the agency's covert action program to drive the Russians out of Afghanistan. You know, if I wanted to do propaganda, I'd have to give people the money and put up a sign and say, you know, uh, something negative about the Russian occupation. But today, you could sit there with an iPhone in your lap. And you could organize 20,000 people if you have the right social network. So countries, autocratic governments, dictatorial type governments are at much greater risk than democratic governments that can, uh, has, they have more flexibility to allow some of these things to evolve. So I think why I'm not expecting to leave, we could be surprised any day that the demonstrations get out of hand. And this is true in China as well and Russia. So if you're an autocrat, you ought to have a, um, a safety net because in this day and age, you're much more vulnerable than your predecessors. Two quick questions, neither of which have quick answers, I'm afraid. Uh, you were in charge of the CIA's largest, most successful covert action operation, which drove the Russians out of their theater of war, which was Afghanistan. It had previously been the British. The British were defeated there. The American now, and President Biden has said, has gone along with 45's willingness to pull American troops out of Afghanistan. Your thoughts, is this not giving Afghanistan, not just back to the Pashtuns, but back to the Russians as a theatre of war? It's often it's your first step in a strategic move that, that is the most important one by far. So I'm not telling you a secret that I really did not think we should have gone into Afghanistan with our a full-blown army, right? Uh, when we did the effort against the, the Russians back in the late, uh, mid to late 80s, we went in clandestinely working with a couple allies, I mean, the Pakistanis and, 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 and Chinese at that time, but we worked with some allies, but basically we provided support to people that wanted to fight. In other words, I think it's a mistake to go in and take over a government and try and model it on some democratic formula. You get a whole army in there, and that's the lesson that you were talking about. The Russians went in there once before, the Chinese went in. You know, occupying a country, and Colin Powell once said this about Iraq, once you go in and take it, you know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't get out. So... I think it was a huge mistake. I think we should have tried to do what we did back. In fact, the first few steps in uh, in Afghanistan, we went back and dealt with the same people, not their sons, but many of the same people I dealt with a, a couple of decades earlier, and with special forces, CIA, working together with these groups. The Taliban w was uh, driven out of power. I don't know if people realize that. And then uh, 
the military and are full blown. Uh, and it becomes, you know, once you're in, it's close to a trillion, you know, couple trillion dollars, almost six between Iraq and Iran. So I'm not a big advocate. I think you you hold your military back until you're, you're, you're hit and you have an issue. Otherwise, and I'm an advocate of using below the radar uh, clandestine activity. So now, how do you get out? It's the hardest problem is all we get in getting out. And I would say if we wanted to keep a presence there, I would go back to if you pull out of some place and you have interest, then if there are people there, I mean, you can't force feed this. If there aren't people, don't waste your time. You've got to write it off. But if there are people there that are, share a common interest, then you support it clandestinely. But you lift, you get your, your physical footprint of a real army and the American flag flying, that, which can become a target. So I think it, you know, it's make a mistake going in, and now two decades later, trying to figure out how we can get out is it's not surprising. Um, but at a certain point, you leave. If you have equities, there's ways to conduct it. It's called covert action, and it's a it's an integral part of of, uh, of the intelligence world uh, among virtually all nation all major nation states. Very sadly, we haven't got time to get into this, but you have thoughts. Osama bin Laden was a Saudi. He was hiding, taking cover in Afghanistan, in the caves. He was a Saudi. America is not disassociating from Saudi. Geopolitically, it suits because of oil and fossil fuels, I presume. The whole business of hitting Afghanistan, basically for a Saudi terrorist operation, seems to have been lost. Well... Bin Laden didn't have a home in Saudi Arabia. I mean, he was in Yemen. In fact, one thing I wanted to make clear the audience misunderstood when the uh, effort was undertaken to drive the Russians out of Afghanistan, Bin Laden's role was minuscule. No one, I'd never heard of him. And I actually talked talk to the commander, our guy out there, and he said, well, he was in maybe one skirmish, you know, and he would never received our weapons. He received them from the Arab states. It was not part of our program. So Bin Laden was not a creature of, of, the, United, of the United States program out there. But after, after the Russians left, he left and, you know, was in the Sudan, Sudan, and he didn't go back until the mid-90s. So the Taliban is a pro, not a product of the agency. It came years after, after we left. So his relationship with the Saudi government was, I mean, he was uh, he was a hostile force as far as they were concerned. It's a big family. Some of the family are part of the part of the kingdom. So I want to separate Bin Laden out. And then your bigger geopolitical question is, what, what about our relationship with Saudi Arabia? Just on that, I have to say that one of the Bin Ladens was actually in business with George W. Bush Houston Airport. That is inexplicable. Well, the only, I will just say on a personal basis when the 9-11 came, uh, some of the Bin Ladens were in the United States and someone wanted to see if we could help them get out. And I, I said, no way. And the problem was there are members of that family. It's a big family. It's not, you know, it's not five brothers here. And there are some of them that, I mean, clearly... Uh, he was the black sheep and they were totally opposed to him. I, I believe that. I just didn't want to be associated with anybody that named uh, Bin Laden and said it's not fair. Uh, and so 
in the case of George uh, George Bush, I mean, this was the other side. This was not the Bin Laden terrorist side of the family. Okay, so I, I I think I would make I would make that distinction. But your bigger point, which is Bin Laden or no Bin Laden, uh, what is the nature of our relationship with Saudi Arabia? And, and this is a this is one of the trickier things that that uh, President Biden's going to have to deal with, as did President Trump, and that is the Saudis are very important. They used to be more important because of their oil, but they're also a strategic player in the region. And you have a Sunni Shia, which I'm sure a lot of your audience is aware of, one of the big divisions is between the Iranian Shias and the Sunnis. So in order to keep balance in that area, you know, the Saudis are a big player. Having said that, uh, you know, you have to be realistic about your partners, but there are levels of behavior that just aren't acceptable by anyone's standards. And I, I think I think uh, we've seen some of Saudi Arabia and, and recent actions by the leadership in Saudi Arabia that have made it much more difficult for uh, President Trump and it will be equally difficult for uh, President Biden to have the type of relationship we had, say, 20 years ago. Many of your, uh, I'd like to remind listeners, many of Jack Devine's answers bring up more questions than, of course they do, because they are facile in the, in the context of just a 30-minute interview. But Jack, your book answers all these questions very, very thoroughly. My final question, I have to get back to Vladimir Putin. As a CIA intelligence supremo, one of the things intelligence masters always do, and you wrote a spy master's prism, you operate through that prism, is to identify the vulnerabilities of your opposition. Know thine enemy, as Lao Tzu would say. You know thine enemy, identify his weaknesses, and that best enables you to cope with him or move him to one side aggressively or non-aggressively. Jack Devine, what is Vladimir Putin's weakness and what is he most afraid of going forward? Arguably, many say he's afraid of nothing. That there, everyone is afraid of something. And if not, uh, you know, you're a great risk taker. Uh, I'm sure that in the twilight of the evening, he sits and looks at himself and has to think about his own viability. And he's very conscious of power and how you use power. All of that is the part of that power is the preservation of yourself, right? So I, I, I don't sign up that he's so fearless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, your, your, your power is often related to your country. I guess I would make that point. Uh, one thing that Americans don't really appreciate as much as I think uh, they should is just how powerful the United States is. There's a a tendency today to say we're weakening and we're, we're falling apart. And it just is such rubbish. I mean, the real truth is this is a powerful country. We have restrained ourselves from using that power. You say, well, no, you've done these all these different things. But I will tell you around the world, America is viewed as, you know, everybody wants to be on its side. I mean, largely, and things are said publicly. So it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful uh, country still. And people should not underestimate it. We're just more restrained. In Putin's case, he does not have a powerful country. His GDP is the size of Spain or Italy, so I think. Now, adding Ukraine helps um, and, and so on. But his weakness is that he's playing a big hand, 
but in a much reduced uh, power base internationally. There's no way he could challenge the Chinese or Americans in any sort of confrontation. Minus nuclear weapons where all people are equal. But I mean, if you're talking about real power, so his vulnerability is economic. And it's, uh, you know, largely a one-product country, which makes it even more vulnerable. The second thing, as I said earlier, there's an inherent weakness by having an autocratic government. You say, well, that's an oxymoron. If you're autocratic, then you're powerful. But that's true. But that's the weakness. So I think, you know, on hard, hard economic times, he'd be, be, be very, uh, very weak. And as I said, I, I finish on this comment, he'd be a much stronger country if he wasn't, if he opened up the, the relationship with the United States, got the investment. You know, he, he would have, but he is locked in where you started, you know, locked in with the spy master view of the Cold War. And uh, he's making, a re he's going to make a reality that we're back in it again. But the stakes are higher and the tools are much more dangerous. The cyber tools are so much dangerous than anything I had at my disposal during the Cold War. So um, he has much to be concerned about. Jack Devine is the president of the Arkin Group, an international risk consulting and intelligence firm. He formerly served as acting director and associate director of operations at the CIA. This book is Spymaster's Prism, the fight against Russian aggression. Jack Devine, D-E-V-I-N-E. -E. You can find him on his website, please Google, or on Twitter. Thank you very much indeed, Jack, for speaking to KGNU. It was my pleasure. Thank you.